Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And joining us today on the show is my guest, Noriel Rabini, author of the new book, Mega Threats, 10 Dangerous Threats That Imperil Our Future and How to Survive Them. Of course, Noriel is infamous and famous in the crypto world and beyond for many of his prescient predictions, which we can get into the history of him kind of calling out things before they happened, especially with the GFC and the last crypto bubble. I remember I wrote a story about um, you when you called it the mother of all bubbles, and that made a lot of headlines. But the book really focuses on a wide range of threats that you've identified from the impact of AI to the sort of debt crisis that you've outlined, as well as the macro forces that are shaping the current landscape right now, climate change as well. So there's there's a lot in this book, and I have kind of, it's been my best friend the past few days. I've been, you know, if you look at it, I've completely destroyed it with notes and questions and pen marks. There's some tears in it. So it's gotten some love for me. But before we dive in, I just want to take a minute to thank our sponsors. Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022 with a total of $1.2 million in prizes across Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. The wait is over. Tron Grand Hackathon presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondao.org. This episode is also brought to you by Ledin. From Bitcoin and USDC savings accounts to Bitcoin-backed loans, Ledin's financial services enable you to benefit from your holdings today without selling your Bitcoin. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I would like to welcome our guest, Noriel Rubini, chairman of Rubini Macro Associates. Noriel. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, great being with you today. It's really a pleasure. Yeah. It's a piacere, signor. Il piacere mio. <laughs> so let's, let's get right into it. At a high level, can you walk us through the underpinning thesis of the book? What are these threats and what sort of quality of life and economy will we have once these sort of threats that you've identified manifest is this like the 1970s? Is it post-GFC? Is it like an escape from New York doomsday world? What should we expect? It's uh, like the latter rather than just the 70s <laughs> and the GFC. Um, unfortunately, there are severe mega threats uh, that imperil not only our jobs, our income, our savings, our wealth, but they imperil the planet and even peace and prosperity. Uh, there are scenarios in which... Uh, you could have a third world war among great powers in the next decade, for example, or a total uh, nuclear winter or annihilation from global climate change. Now, I wrote this book because uh, I have great hair. I'm slightly older than you guys. I'm in my mid-60s. And I grew up uh, between Middle East and Italy, 
between the late 50s and the early 1980s. Now, when I was growing up, I never, never worried about uh, nuclear war because after the detente between US and Soviet Union and after the opening of Nixon to China, there was no risk of a nuclear war. There were confrontation, there were proxy wars between US and Soviet Union, Afghanistan, Mozambique, Angola, but really no risk of that. I never heard about climate change. You know, there was the Club of Rome in the 70s, it was a Malthusian story about the limits of growth coming from resources, but it was not about climate change. I never heard about the global pandemics. The last one had been mm -hmm. in 1918 and until the early 80s with HIV and SARS, nothing like that. Never heard about AI potentially destroying jobs. We were in the middle of an AI winter, really. Never heard about deglobalization. If anything, the opposite was happening. We had massive trade globalization, China, India, emerging markets. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, tons of other countries were joining and we went into hyper-globalization. Never heard about debt crisis because debt was low and growth was strong. Never heard about implicit debt and unfathomed liabilities coming mm -hmm. from Social Security or Medicare because uh, young people were growing, the elderly were still low, and therefore there was no risk of implicit debt. I've never heard about uh, severe economic cycles. There was some recession, but were mild, with the exception maybe of the 70s speculation. And also financial cycles were modest. There were no severe financial crises like the one we've seen in advanced economies and emerging markets since the 80s. And finally, I, we lived into liberal democracies in advanced economies and uh, authoritarian populist countries were mostly poor countries and so on. So this is the world in which I grew up. Now you fast forward to the last say 20 years. So we had 40 years between 1945 and 1985 of relative peace, prosperity, and billions of people getting out of extreme poverty and getting to a better livelihood. China, India, Asia, emerging market, Latin America. If I look at the world today, uh, we have literally the risk of war between nuclear powers and global war among great powers. Literally what's happening right now in Ukraine could escalate in the next few months into either an unconventional war or spread to NATO. Israel could strike Iran. And US and China are literally on a collision course. The worry about the Cold War between US and China becoming a hot war was a worry about the next 10 years. The US defense establishment in the last week has made statements that the Chinese could strike uh, Taiwan as early as 2024, a year and a half from now. Okay, that's what's happening. We are facing an environmental apocalypse and the risk of literally end of the planet. There is so much greenwashing, green wishing, green fig leaves. All of this ESG mm. investment is all talk and no action. And politically, domestically, internationally, we're doing nothing. Glasgow COP was just a total failure. We could have pandemics worse than the biblical plagues. Why suddenly, since the 80s, we're having HIV, SARS, MERS, swine flu, bird flu, Zika, Ebola, COVID-19, monkeypox? Because the relation between global climate change and destruction of ecosystem and animals with the pathogens like bats and pangolins getting in touch with livestock and humanity. That's why you have the transmission. That's why these things are becoming so much more frequent and severe and they're gonna get worse. We're facing today in high inflation, the risk of recession, stagflation, and this is gonna be worse than the 1970s. Because in the 1970s, we had these negative supply shocks, the two oil shocks of 1979, but debt ratios were low in advanced economies. After the GFC, we had too much debt and we had the debt crisis, 
but it was a demand shock, not a supply shock. So we had deflation, we could do massive monetary and fiscal stimulus. Today, we're gonna face not only inflation, not only recession, not only stagflation, but the stagflationary debt crisis, what I call in the book, the mother of all debt crisis, because the level of private and public debt as a share of GDP are at an all-time high, worse in the US than after the Great Depression or after World War II, and they're gonna interact with each other. The recession we're gonna face is not gonna be short and shallow. It's gonna be severe, an economic crash. It's gonna feed on tightening financial condition, and the financial condition tightening is gonna make the recession worse in a vicious cycle. We're facing, of course, the basement of fiat currencies and financial crisis and financial meltdowns. That's why the folks in the crypto world think, hey, the alternative is uh, crypto. I'm skeptical, we can discuss it, but certainly I've been the one, well, even before the global financial crisis, worried about the financial system being fragile, having boom and bust cycles, boom, bust, followed by bust and crash, and so on, and we need to do something about it, and it's a source of systemic risk. We have the risk right now of AI destroying most jobs, labor income, and making literally, eventually, homo sapiens even obsolete. And it's not just the routine jobs, it's not just the cognitive jobs that can be sliced into a series of tasks, but now plenty of creative jobs are gonna be also essentially made obsolete. My job as an economist trying to predict what the Fed is gonna do today, 10 years from now, there's a high, it's gonna look at every point, every data, every speech of every Fed official, it's gonna make better prediction than me. I will be obsolete, maybe and I'm can, a top economist. Maybe we can dive into the AI component just because it's top of mind, I think, for a lot of our listeners. You're, yeah. not, you're not glued it, to Twitter to the same extent that I am, but have you seen these AI-generated tweets that people have been sharing? I've not seen them, but I've played- They with, come close, I, it's I, scary. I, 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 I've, I've played a little bit with uh, DALI too, and the kind of art you can do. I've seen what you can do with Transformers and GPT-3. Literally, we are already at some form of singularity, and the Turing test has been passed. You cannot tell whether you're talking with a machine or a human. And this is just the beginning of it, literally, in terms of not only routine jobs, not only cognitive jobs, but creative jobs that AI that are painting that creating music is only a matter of time when a top 10 Billboard magazine song is going to be a bestseller created fully by AI, fully by AI. I mean, it's, it's, movie fairly, scripts. it's fairly nascent, but I'm telling yeah. you, these tweets that were generated by artificial intelligence to capture my essence really do. I mean, there's you can sense my latent sarcasm that kind of underpins the way I speak. And they nail it. Like if you read these tweets that the AI generated, it, it sounds like it's coming from me. That's kind of scary. Yeah. Uh, I want to maybe take a look at that and, and try to tease out a more rosy alternative. Part of in, in one section of the book, you talk about this um, implicit debt, which if I were to summarize it, there are all of these, there's this vast amount or this massive social social blanket Social Security, Medicare, that because of the demographic picture that we're in where, you know, I think you have, you know, two workers for every retiree at this point, which is way less than it was 50 years ago. It's probably an order of magnitude larger. Is there a potential that the AI can step in and take some of these jobs so that you then don't necessarily have like a gap in the labor market, which could result in um, sort of less economic activity that 
can't pay for those social securities and other social welfare programs? Well, the problem we're facing right now is that there are not enough workers and there are too many elderly people, and we made promises to these elderly people to give them pension, uh, healthcare, and so on. That's a structural problem. Now, suppose that the AI replaces uh, many more jobs, both white-collar and blue-collar, low-value-added, high-value-added. The factory of the future is going to be what? It's going to be 1,000 machines and a man or a woman manning them, and another person sweeping the floor. And that one is already being replaced by Roomba robot, can do it faster, better, 24-7, without vacation, bathroom breaks, and benefits. And that income that comes from the machine is capital income, is not labor income. While what is pay, paying for the pay-as-you-go social security system is labor income. So if the share of labor income is going to shrink and the one of capital goes higher, unless we have massive taxation of capital income that is actually taxed today in the U.S., mostly less than labor income, we're not going to have a solution to this pay-as-you-go problem. Because the fundamental problem actually is going to be made worse by the fact there'll be even less workers creating labor income that pays payroll taxes that pay for the benefits of the early. Of course, so with, could we with AI... Could we restructure it to tax corporates and capital to fill that gap? Well, with AI, if you're going to have a massive permanent technological employment, forget for a moment about the elderly. You have to give income to the young people. So we'll have to tax the winners, the machines, the capital, the top 10% are going to be benefiting from AI in terms of the labor income to redistribute income to those who are technologically wiped out with unemployment. That's mm. what universal basic income is. If that economic pie were to be large enough, yes, if you tax enough capital and the winners, you could maybe also pay for those social security benefits and for the healthcare of the elderly. But today, if we are giving to every American just $1,000 per month, that's nothing, $12,000 mm -hmm. a year, the cost today with the current GDP is gonna be 20% of GDP of the US. You'll have either to tax 20% more everybody or cut government spending by 20% of GDP, essentially no government, or borrow like crazy and we're gonna go bankrupt like the UK. And that means that with the current level of growth, there's barely 2%, you cannot have a UBI, let alone using some of the UBI money to pay for the elderly, because the UBI money is supposed to be paying for the young people, not for the elderly. Now, if we were to grow 6 7% of GDP because there is a AI revolution, and if we're willing to tax those who are winners, yeah, there'll be enough money to compensate everybody else. But you know, most people don't want a welfare check. They want the dignity of work. They don't want to spend their lives like, you know, effectively feeling like socially parasites and somebody's giving them a check from the moment you're born until you die. That's not the living. You want to have the dignity of work, of being productive. So UBI in principle deals with the income problem doesn't deal with the moral problem that you don't want to be just an unproductive member of society and survive, just Unless survive. Unless you hop into the metaverse and find your job there. <laughs> well, you don't find your job there. Today, by the way, that thing is already happening because you have a whole generation of young people that are skillless, they're hopeless, they're incomeless, they're wealthless. They're not having sex. And, uh, yeah, and those, <laughs> and those incels, what do they do all day long? One, they play video games. Two, they are in a metaverse and maybe a virtual mating of some sort. And three, many of them are on opioids. You have an opioid epidemic where two million Americans today are addicted to opioids and 5% of that stock dies every year. That's why last year we had 100,000 people dying of uh, overdoses. 
almost all of them from opioids. So this is a very think- dystopian world in which, yeah, you can give them drugs, you can give them the money, you can give them the video games, they're going to survive, but they're going to just survive. That's soulless. a very dispo- dystopian, and eventually it's too... I mean, the, the Romans were doing the Panem and Circensum, right? Give them the bread and give them the circus. <laughs> Today we're going to give them a little bit of bread so they can eat. And we're going to give them the metaverse and the video games and the drugs, right? Eventually even the drugs. Okay, what if what So if that's, governments- that's a dystopian future. It's not a utopian future. It's a nightmare future. And you think there's a what percent chance of the future looking exactly like that? We know that um, most jobs, leaving aside those that are most creative, gradually over time are going to be replaced by AI, machine learning, and so on, white collar and blue collar. We don't know how long it's going to take, but eventually we're going to get there. I mean, the scientists think that Homo sapiens, our own species, is going to be made obsolete, that either we merge with the machine, we become transhuman, Homo deus, femina deus, whatever not, then Homo sapiens will not survive in the next probably 100 years once we reach singularity, superintelligence, AGI, and you name it. Can so we it's only a matter of time. Can we implement laws that limit the parameters of what AI does? Or have we already <clears throat> reached escape velocity on that? We, we cannot because if we do it, China will not do it. Iran is not going to do it. North Korea is not going to do it. Eric Schmidt, formerly at Google, and Eric Kissinger, the biggest tragedy of the US, they just wrote a book saying why there is a risk that the U.S. loses the race to dominate essentially AI, machine learning, robotic automation, and all the industries of the future. It's not an economic threat only, it's a geopolitical threat. Because in terms of military, who controls the AI, controls also the weapons. They're going to be autonomous weapons. They're going to win the wars of the future. So now, in every technology, if one country, one group of people doesn't use it, somebody else is going to develop it. And by the way, Technological innovations are always driven by military, security, mm-hmm. and geopolitical conflicts. We had the first golden area of globalization. We had massive innovations, and we ended up with World War I. We had the Roaring Twenties, massive innovations. We ended up with the Great Depression and World War II. The idea that technology is going to leave peace, love, prosperity, and so on is actually the opposite. We develop technologies because we want to develop weapons to essentially control other parts of the world. And eventually, there are also commercial spillovers of those technological innovations for the military. So innovation and technology often leads to war and certainly leads to what is called the Thucydides trap. Rising power, facing existing power, eventually those cold wars become hot wars. Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022. There are a total of $1.2 million in prizes up for grabs in Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. So what are you waiting for? Join Tron for an opportunity to showcase your work, win funding for your project, and network with other builders in the community. Tron Grand Hackathon, presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondao.org. I also want to give a shout out to Ledin. Ledin, Bitcoin-backed loans and savings by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. As we've seen, not all digital asset lenders are created equal. Ledin prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with its robust risk management approach. That is why Ledin doesn't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation strategies with its clients' assets and only supports Bitcoin and USDC two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. 
Ledin is also dedicated to transparency, which is why they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. Okay, my uh, heart's palpitating a little bit, so I think we need to go into something that makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside, which is the Fed and macro. In the book, you you talk about how the the central banks around the world are going to completely wimp out yep. and sort of get off the track that they're on of monetary tightening. What happens if they don't well, wimp right, out, that is? Well, right now, they all are playing tough. They're sounding hawkish because inflation is between 8 to 10% between US, Europe, and the UK. So we have to fight inflation because if we don't fight inflation, we have a risk to the anchor inflation expectation. You get a wage price spiral. Again, I'm old enough. I remember in the 70s when we had negative supply shock, Yom Kippur, Iran Revolution. We're behind the curve. We ended up with inflation, double digit, and then recession and stagflation. And it was a nightmare. So right now they say we have to fight it. But first of all, this recession is not going to be short and shallow. Like the 70s is going to be severe. And the negative supply shock today are not just oil. It's oil, it's energy, it's food, it's fertilizer, it's natural metal, just because of Russia, Ukraine, let alone the impact of climate change, pandemics, and lots of other things in the book that I talk about that are medium-term negative supply shocks, not the current ones. The current ones are only COVID, the zero-tolerance policy of China, and Russia, Ukraine. So we have these negative shocks that reduce potential growth, increase the cost of production, but unlike the 70s, when we had low debt ratio, now we have high debt ratio. So if you tighten monetary policy to achieve 2%, first of all, you have a recession, an economic crash, and it's not going to be a short and shallow one. It's going to be a severe recession because of the high debt. You could cause a financial crash. Equities, credit, bonds, and you name it, that feeds them on the economic crash. And I think that politically, having a massive recession and having a financial crash feeding on the recession is going to become politically unacceptable. They're going to wimp out. They're going to blink. The first one was, of course, the Bank of England. We did it. But the, the Fed did it in 2019. They were supposed to raise rates and continue QT. And the first sounds of some disturbances, they started cutting rates. And they started redoing quantitative easing through the back door through the repo operation. One year before the COVID shock, early 2019. So they wimped out when there was a little bit of a slowdown of economic activity. I feel like they were forced to wimp out because... Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Liz Truss' proposals, fiscal policies were just so out there and borderline idiotic. They were, but uh, economists talk about uh, uh, fiscal dominance. Fiscal dominance means that when there is a fiscal policy that is in conflict with monetary policy in the game of chicken yeah. between fiscal treasury and the central bank, the central bank blinks. Because if you don't, then interest rates rise and you can have a debt crisis. Today, it's not just fiscal dominance. It's what the economists at the Bank for International Settlement call a debt trap. There is not only so much public debt, but there is even more private debt that if you try to fight inflation, you're going to cause a financial crash in the bond market, in credit markets, household, corporates, banks, shadow banks, government, country alone. And that trap implies that they're locked they cannot raise rates enough to fight inflation. That's why they'll have to wimp out and blink. And we're going to end up with inflation, with recession, stagflation, and still a debt crisis. Got it. 
and there's no way to break out of the debt cycle. What about, let's focus on households because I feel like they might be the more rosier group out of those three buckets. Cash balances are relatively high um, post-pandemic. Um, you also have consumers still spending. Um, so it doesn't seem that bleak from the household perspective at this moment, but do you see that changing? Well, there was a story just this morning in the paper saying that uh, 50% of all U.S. households in the bottom 50% are financially stressed and they're going from check to check. There was a study done by the Fed saying that 40% of all U.S. households have less than $400 of cash in case there is an emergency. Right now, there is still job, there is still income, and the wealth has fallen because the stock market has fallen. The home prices have not yet fallen, but for most poor people, their home is maybe their only asset. Mm -hmm. Debt servicing ratios are rising because interest rates on mortgages, on credit cards, on personal loans, on auto loans, on student loans, on shark loans are sharply rising. Before, you had zombie households, probably half of the bottom, that were insolvent, but because of zero rates and zero long rates or close to zero long rates, that servicing ratio were low. Now but instead, we had because the adjustable of, rates for mortgages. Yeah, but the interest rate didn't matter they were adjustable because rates were zero on the short end. So if it was adjustable, you pay close to zero. And on the long end, it was barely 1%, less than 1%. A year ago, 10-year treasury were less than 1%. I refinanced my home a few mm -hmm. years ago at 2%, 10-year 2%. Nice. Nice, right? So right now it's seven. So think about if you instead a long one or you have to roll it over into long one, or even if it's short right now, short rates are four or five going towards seven. Then you go bankrupt. That's mm. the situation. So you have a shock to your income when there is a recession. You're going to lose your job or wages are growing less than inflation. So even if you have a job, your real, real income is falling. You don't have much assets if you're poor. And now you have an increase in your debt servicing ratio. That combination of PL shock and balance sheet shock is going to lead to severe stress for some part of the household sector. Again, same thing with the business sector. You have high yield and you have a high grade. You have highly leveraged firms and lower leveraged firms. Same thing with the government. I don't want to say everybody is a zombie, but we have so many zombie households, corporates, businesses, banks, shadow banks, governments, and entire countries. And during the last two crises, GFC and COVID, we built them out. We built them out because we went back to yeah. zero, negative, QE, quantitative easing, credit easing during GFC and during the COVID. Because there was low inflation, we could do the monetary stimulus. Today, instead, we have to increase interest rates because inflation is above target. And therefore, we have to tighten monetary policy into the recession. And that makes that severity of the recession even more severe. So let's go back to your pre or early COVID pandemic predictions, which was that effectively the these governments around the world were going to go too hard with stimulus mm -hmm. and yeah. went way overboard. Yeah. When you think about the response to the pandemic, um, and <laughs> in the book you talk about how it's unbridled. Trump did it. Biden yeah, did it. Yeah. Everybody yeah, was, it was bipartisan. Totally bipartisan. One of the only bipartisan things we see. Yeah. But how could could we have twenty percent of GDP? Twenty percent of GDP. Yeah, it's nuts. But I mean, really, how could we have navigated the crisis and come out? the other side without contributing too much damage to this sort of 
debt trap that we found ourselves in with maybe 25% as much fiscal stimulus or 50%. What, I mean, clearly we had to do something to get people through that economic uh, period of hardship. Absolutely. Uh, we had to p- help those that were illiquid but solvent. But in the process, we also built out those who were illiquid and insolvent. was a blanket across the board for everybody. The size of the stimulus should have been smaller, the fiscal, the monetary, and the credit easing. We literally built out corporates, household, banks, non-banks, money market, shadow banks, high yield, high grade, uh, yeah. everybody. But and basically lots, of, lots could... of fraud. So the size was excessive. There's a debate on how much of the rise in inflation was due to bad policy, too much monetary fiscal and credit stimulus, and too much bad luck. This negative supply shock like COVID, Russia, Ukraine, now China. Depends on the country. In the U.S. was more the bad policy, less the shocks. In Europe, where they have exposure to energy from Russia, is more the bad shocks, even if they did also excessive stimulus. So certainly there was some bad luck. Those shocks would have occurred. But the policy response was definitely excessive. And not just me, Mohamed Elarian, Larry Summers, many others have said, we should have done less. Think of it. You had... Under Trump, first of all, a $1.7 trillion tax cut that was totally unjustified. This was before COVID. Mm-hmm. Then during COVID, he did $2.5 trillion of stimulus, one in March and one in December. And then Biden comes and does another $2.5 trillion of stimulus between the first package and the second one. This is an amount of stimulus that by any standard compare even to the size of the shock. And by the way, by June of 2020, we knew that the economy had bottomed out. The recession was very short, mm-hmm. was very severe, but was between March and June. By June, economic activity started to rise. We didn't know how robust it would be. We needed a stimulus, monetary, fiscal, and credit, but we really blanketed the entire world economy with excessive stimulus, and that is part of the story of why we ended up. And by the way, this debt cycle has been around for decades. Every time there is a recession, we do more borrowing, private and public, and mm-hmm. there is a higher debt ratio. And then we have the Greenspan put, and then the Bernanke put, the Yellen put, now the Powell put, and we bailed out everybody. So the incentive is to borrow even more. That's why private and public debt as a share of GDP was about 100% in the 70s. By 2000, it was about 200% of GDP. Last year, it was 350% of GDP globally. Private debt being household, corporates, and financial institutions. And in advanced economies, the number is 420% of GDP. And as I pointed out, the U.S. higher than the Great Depression and World War II. This is an amount of debt that for a while was sustainable when interest rates were zero and any zombie was bailed out. Yeah. Now the party is over. Now, you know, the zombie are going to die metaphorically. You know who was swimming naked. You mm-hmm. know who was the emperor without clothes. Mm-hmm. When interest rates rise, now that service generation rise and all those zombies are going to go bankrupt. That's why we're going to have the mother of all that crisis. We have so much debt like never before, a shock to your balance sheet, to your wealth, to your debt, to your debt servicing ratio, and to your income and the PL. It's a perfect storm. So the bubble has burst, though, in terms of speculative assets. Not fully. Because the zombies are next? The zombies haven't completely been wiped out? No, I mean, on the debt side, of course, debt service ratio is rising. On the asset side, of course, S&P is down a little more between 20 to 25%, depending on the week. NASDAQ is closer to 25 to 30. 
then meme stocks, crypto, SPACs, old gun, growth stocks, tech stocks, NASDAQ, VCs, all bust, real estate in terms of public REITs, bust, credit, now you have high yield spreads at 600 over treasury, they're gonna go much higher than that, even high grade is higher. The only safe asset used to be long-term bonds, because mm -hmm. usually when equity fall, bond yields go lower and the price goes higher, so you make money. There is a negative correlation between bond prices and equity prices, risk on, risk off, growth recession. This year, for the first time in decades, bond prices were falling when equity prices were falling because the yield went from 1% for the 10-year treasury to about four. You lost more money on your safe government bonds. You lost about 30%, or you lost only 25% of the S&P. So there was nowhere to hide. If you had a 60-40 portfolio, 60 equities, 40 bonds, 70-30, or even risk parities, variants of the same, you lost money on the risky asset, you lost money on the bond assets. Even cash lost money because in real term, of course, was wiped out by inflation. There are other assets that can protect you from inflation in the basement, but yeah, we can discuss some them. tips. Tips, short-term treasuries, gold, certain types of resilient and sustainable real estate, other alternatives that I'm working with a bunch of colleagues to develop. You're developing this ETF at some point, though. Yep. Um, We're that's, launching that's it. That's going to go to zero because the world's going to be in calamity. No, there are some assets that are going to be still worth it in a world even of calamity. Yeah, there'll be assets that'll be worth having. We'll just be trading them in our, our nuclear fallout bunkers. Yeah, of course, in a world of nuclear winter, there are more serious things to worry about, like you know, surviving than your financial wealth. But there are ways in which people can protect themselves, both individually and collectively and financially, of course. Yeah, definitely. I think you put it so well. I mean, hearkening back just to that crazy period, I'm going to read this passage. Um, you know, the, the bust of the market, which occurred in 2021, 2022, was driven by that liquidity tailwind. Uh, and you say here, we can't overlook the fact that the U.S. government had just sent checks to millions of adults. Is this how some of them spent the money? Millions were day trading and gambling their little savings in meme stocks or crypto assets with no fundamental values. It did not help them and it did not help the economy as policymakers had intended. So much of the stimulus went to speculation, not to economic output. And the money vanished into thin air, as you put it. Um, but yeah. is the spec... If, is the speculative frenzy, you're, you're saying it's not over to an extent? No, because uh, say S&P is down about 22% from the peak. If you had a short and shallow recession, a typical short and shallow recession in the US S&P is down 30%. If you have a recession like the GFC is 50. I believe it's gonna be worse than the GFC, but suppose it's just in between short and shallow and a more severe one, has to be 40, we're down 22, mm. so we have 10 to go. Just to give you one example of how the correction has occurred, but it's going to be more severe. There's only one scenario in which uh, the stock market from current level goes higher. If you have essentially avoid a hard landing, you have a soft landing, inflation drops like a stone, and the Fed starts cutting rate by the middle of next year. Then, yes, the current last week uh, market rally is not a bear market rally. But, you know, you had the bear market rally between July and mid-August. January to June, done. 20% plus bear market. Then you had a bear market rally, 
And I wrote about it at the end of June. I said, this is a bear market rally. It's a dead cut bounce. It's going to fall again because inflation is not falling. The Fed cannot pivot. The market thought the Fed is going to pivot, and that's why the rally occurred. Same thing this time around. We've had one week of good, essentially, data on the markets. I think is another bear market rally. During the GFC, we had four bear market rally mm -hmm. between September of 07 and March of 09. It was not just a straight line down. It was zigzagging, going down, then lead up, then down again, then further down and so on. That's how markets evolved. So this is the second bear market rally. That Do you think a soft landing can be achieved? No, no. First of all, Eurozone and the UK are today already in a recession while inflation is close to 10%. These are based on the data. They're not even, even the Bank of England and the ECB do not deny that there'll be a recession. The question is whether it's two quarters, three quarters, or four quarters. The Bank of England is predicting five quarters of negative growth in the United Kingdom, okay? So they are predicting it, and probably it's gonna be worse than that. In the US, there has never been in the last 60 years a single episode where inflation is above 5%, today around 8-ish, and unemployment rate is below 5%, and today is around 37 that when the Fed starts to hiking rates to bring back inflation to 2%, you don't have a recession. In every single episode, we have a recession. And by the way, you can avoid maybe a hard landing when you have overheating. Growth is excessive and inflation is above target. Mm. Aggregate demand shock. When you do have a negative supply shock, growth is already lower, inflation is already higher, and it's them if you do and them if you don't. Because either you fight inflation and you raise rates, but then you have a hard landing. Or if you care about growth and financial stability and you don't tighten very much or you use too soon, then you have the anchoring of inflation expectation, wage price pattern, you end up into stagflation. So it's even tougher to achieve a soft landing when you have a negative supply shock. And even in cases where it was overheating, we did not have a soft landing, let alone when there is a negative supply shock. There is no way we're going to avoid a hard landing. It just doesn't make sense. Thanks for tuning in to part one of our two-part conversation with Noriel Rubini. Stay tuned for part two, where we further explore the mega threats Rubini outlines in his recent book, Mega Threats, The 10 Dangerous Trends That Imperil Our Future and How to Survive Them.